please follow along with us. Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet went to him, after he had gone into Bathsheba, he had also had her husband killed and brought blood guilt on himself, and he was one of his most faithful soldiers. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. If you have never heard any of the teachings we have done that are primarily from the Old Testament, uh, you're in for a treat in that Uh, As I was putting this together, uh, I I kind of felt like this would be one of those messages. It would be, it's somewhat styled in a similar fashion to what we did in Christ in the Old Testament. If you uh, haven't been with us for that long, that's a series we did a number of years ago in which we took 18 or 19 weeks exploring different characters from the Old Testament, either different people or different symbols, different images from the Old Testament, and showed how Christ actually was the center interpretation of those events. He was the primary primary thing that both God in the event was speaking about and the writer of that scripture was speaking about. And so when we approach the Psalms, we often look at them as devotional or meditative guides. And even hearing something from David, like we heard last week, when we saw that it was a maskal of David, a psalm written to teach people uh, how to approach God, just like that psalm, also this week, this psalm has a note of instruction to us. David is giving an example of his repentance that we might learn by that example. But it's not just the case that David is giving moral teaching of how to approach God. He's also saying things and giving us insights into how he can approach God. 
And really, I believe that the whole point of this psalm is to show forth the glory of Jesus Christ in a particular way, even though all of the imagery at the surface level doesn't really seem to have an application to Christ immediately. So we're going to do some deep work in today's reading in providing context. And I'm going to summarize two very important parts of this story, the context before David writes this psalm, that we have to see both the contrasting example of Saul and the righteous example of David. Saul is rebuked by Samuel. David is likewise rebuked by Nathan. And yet these are polar opposite responses to God's rebuke and God's chastisement. Without understanding that context, Psalm 51 makes very little sense and is actually quite dense until you begin to unpack what David is doing in confessing the deep nature of his sin. We're going to see a lot of parallels from last week's uh, passage, specifically in verse 1 and 2 being an introduction, verse 3 through 6, we're going to look at David having a confession of sin. Verse 6 itself is really the center point, if you will, of this psalm that God is desiring uh, truth in the inward parts. And we're going to notice today how the psalm is actually structured in David's confession. It gets deeper and deeper and then crescendos in verse 6. And then from there, David's attention completely turns from his sin, his action, what he's done to what God needs to do to remedy the situation. This entire psalm is screaming forth of David's inability to repair himself. And we're going to see how David's verbs, the words that he uses, the petition that he makes to God actually point constantly away from him being the source of his repair to God's necessity of action, that God must arise and put right this situation, which is completely David's fault. And from there, we're actually going to see how God's action and redemption becomes a restoration of David's mouth. Part of the the job as a king is to rule the nation and to interpret law for the people. We're going to see in the contrast of Saul and his loss of the kingdom, in place of that, God brings a restoration to David. Not only does he not lose the kingdom, he's now involved in a righteous action of bringing sinners to repentance. This is really an expansion of the job of a king, and and he's actually going to have a blessing that he's going to bring from that. And then finally, at the end, we're going to look at how every single image and pointer, shadow, illusion, reference, it all points to Jesus Christ. If you were around in uh, the 70s, you may have heard a song by a lady named Carly Simon. And Carly Simon wrote a song, and that song was, You're So Vain. Does anybody know that song? You're So Vain? What is the line? You're So Vain, you think this song is about you, right? And I think that, that she in some way is a prophet, prophetess. Because what we do with the Psalms is we often turn them to just being about David or, or by extension being about me. But really this Psalm is about Jesus Christ. This Psalm is supposed to lead us to see Jesus. And so at the end of this Psalm, we're going to take all of the work in Leviticus, 1 Samuel, and 2 Samuel, and we're going to bring it home to see how Jesus Christ in the Gospels fulfills every need and every pressure point, if you will, in this psalm. Now, I'm going to say at the outset that this is probably one of the most, uh, of all the sermons I've ever given, this probably will have the most textual detail, and I'm the most excited about this one. Uh, And so I would encourage you, we're going to do something that might seem like homework to you. We're going to give a lot of literary details, but I'm actually convinced that men and women, mankind, is built to love narrative. If you look at the culture around us, you see the explosion in popularities of, of TV shows that aren't just simply action, they're TV shows with deep narrative arcs, that they go through plot, dilemma, character development, Everything about what you love about great television or great literature, great fiction, great history, great poetry, all of it involves listening, 
and paying attention and remembering. Some of my favorite TV shows can only be watched if you remember what happened previous episodes and in previous seasons. In fact, one of my favorite TV shows is so self-referential that just a, a week ago, one of my uh, favorite theologian bloggers, he quoted a line in, in his, in his uh, writing that day from the TV show, and I just chuckled with joy because he was, he was talking about the interwoven nature of Scripture, and that's something that you're going to see today. It, there are references back and forth, and I think David is intending to make a reference that is supposed to drive us to see the depth of his corruption in the innermost being. And from that place, God's necessity and ability to restore it. So I would encourage you, listen and remember. We're going to start with Saul. I'm going to give a very brief overview of the story of Saul. Saul was a king chosen by the people to be a king like the kings of the other nations. And Saul, early on in his kingdom, in his kingship rather, he presumed to lead the people in public corporate worship, which was a task that was not permissible for kings to do. It was only for priests and prophets. And so Samuel arrives after uh, Saul has already committed this offering, which he should not have done, and he rebukes Saul and tells him that the kingdom is going to depart. God has rejected you as king because you have rejected him as God. And from this very place of Saul's initial rejection uttered by Samuel, he does not repent, but instead takes some time and compounds. His guilt builds and builds. Saul is given one more chance. He's tested again to see if he would repent and obey. Samuel comes and announces to Saul that you are to go up and you are to slay the Amalekites. You're to slay them for what they did to the people of Israel on Israel's journey through the wilderness. This is why it's so important to remember because what Samuel is telling Saul to do has to do with the book of Exodus. See, even in our introduction, there's a backstory to it. There's a context that you have to understand. And so plumbing the context here is so important. Saul then goes on and spares the Amalekite king and his sheep. He spares the Amalekite king and his sheep, and the rebuke that Samuel brings is so poetically stated as, what is this bleeding of sheep that I hear? You see, Samuel arrives and he hears these flocks of the Amalekites that have been preserved because Saul wanted again to use them in worship to bring them as burnt offerings to God when God had actually commanded that they be devoted in destruction. In the, in the scriptures, there are really two forms of things that have to die before God. Things that die as a substitute and things that die simply in judgment. God wanted these sheep to be judged as a part of the overall judgment that comes on the Amalekite culture for their deep treachery that they had done to Israel. And yet Saul says, I know better. These sheep are like blameless sheep. They're worthy to be offered up. But God requires that sheep be blameless, and these sheep are the sheep of an iniquitous people. They can't be offered to God. Saul presumes upon the grace of God. He presumes to take authority that isn't his. And so when confronting Saul, Samuel asks him this question that is the beginning of this narrative thread. Does God delight as much? Does he have as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying his voice? See how this is beginning to connect? If you remember the psalm that we just heard a few minutes ago, Saul proves his rebellion with this second sin, and therefore God takes away the kingdom. Samuel utters, not only has God rejected you, he's now taken away the kingdom. And this begins a process in Saul that will ultimately lead to destruction. David, likewise, just as Saul was, was a king chosen by God. God tells Samuel who to anoint. Samuel anoints David as king, even though he doesn't receive the kingdom at first, and he takes the place of this evil king, Saul. Now, being a man, of course, David starts well, but he sins likewise, though in a different manner than Saul. Saul presumed and kind of tread upon the grace of God. He, he ran into an authority in a place that wasn't his, whereas David, in his sin that we're about to look at, his sin actually was a drifting from God. 
if you look at the context of David's sin in 2 Samuel, it says at the very verse 1 that this happened during the time when kings were supposed to go to war. And yet David sends out Joab and his army. He doesn't go. He doesn't obey God and continue to take victory over the rest of the inhabitants in the land of Canaan who they were to expel. And so David transgresses against God by presuming and drifting. Saul, on the other hand, presumes and stumbles into a realm of authority that isn't his. David's sin is this precisely, that he looks upon a woman named Bathsheba as she is bathing on her rooftop. He's in his palace, and really he ought to have been at the battle scene. And so he's in the wrong context, and in that already, already in that presumption, he gives in to further sin. He looks with lust upon a woman. He, he breaks the covenant w- with his eyes, if you remember that from, from the scriptures. He breaks the covenant with his eyes. He looks upon, a vir- uh, not a virgin, but a, uh, a woman who was not his. He looks upon her and is drawn to her and sends messengers, emissaries, delegates to go get her and to bring her to himself. After she arrives, he then seduces her and sleeps with her. Now, this is already beginning to set us on edge. We're thinking to ourselves, how could David do this great sin, this great evil? And yet, at this point, we begin to see David's plight take uh, a little downfall. He, his, his situation begins to stumble. And we're, we're being shown things by the word, through the narrative, through the story, that weren't immediately visible to the public around this. After learning that she had conceived, she sent word to him privately by messenger. He then attempts to cover up his sin. He calls Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, from the battle back home to Jerusalem. He calls him back home to Jerusalem so that Uriah will go home and sleep with his wife. And therefore, because we don't have DNA testing or paternity testing, it might be concealed from everyone involved, except for David and Bathsheba, that, and, and probably to some degree eventually to Uriah when the baby doesn't look like Uriah, uh, that David was the father. You see, what David is attempting to do is he's attempting to hide and conceal his matter from public knowledge. And so he desires that Uriah would come home and lie with his wife, that his adultery would be concealed. However, Uriah is a man of righteousness. He knows that it is not right for his brothers to still be at battle and yet for him to take ease on his couch. And so he comes to Jerusalem, he obeys David, but he doesn't go into his house. He doesn't sleep with Bathsheba. Now, in rage, David then plots out another cover-up to cover up his failure to cover up in the first place. You see, sin not repented of continues to beget more sin. And David then commands Uriah to take a letter back to Joab, the commander of the army, with Uriah in Uriah's very hand, saying, that Uriah is to be put at the forefront of the battle and then for the people to pull back from him. David not only has committed adultery, now he's conspired to commit murder in order to commit uh, to cover up his adultery. Having learned that Uriah died, this, this succeeds, his plan ultimately comes to pass, David then takes Uriah's wife as his own. He brings her, it says he brings her to his house and she was his wife. Just as Samuel rebuked Saul, so the Lord sends Nathan to rebuke David. At this point, Samuel is already out of the picture. Nathan tells David a parable of a rich man with many flocks and herds and a poor man with only one ewe lamb. A ewe lamb is like a small, tender lamb. If you think of of a lamb, a lot of times you think of these big kind of beefy uh, lambs that are filled with wool and really, I mean, you couldn't pick one up. They're, they're quite large. But the, the words that Nathan uses actually describe a small lamb. That's going to be important in a minute. Though the poor man loved his lamb as his own daughter, the rich man stole it and served as a guest 
for food. You see, there's this rich man who has many flocks and the poor man who only had this one particular lamb who he loved. And Nathan says he loved that lamb as if it was his own daughter. And then David begins to respond to Nathan's parable. See, Nathan writes this parable. He delivers this parable so that David will not immediately understand. And David is outraged at the sense of injustice. Now, what's so amazing to me about this parable and David's response is that in the law, if you stole an ox or a sheep or a goat or a cow, anything that you stole that was livestock had to pay back in restitution. And yet David, I think accurately, responds even with a little grace of God. He understands that this sort of theft is heightened by the fact that it was the poor man's only lamb, that the rich man had so many other sheep and a flock to tend to, and also that this poor man deeply loved this little lamb. And so David goes beyond the mere requirement of the law and says, this man should be put to death. It's amazing to me because David, as the king, he had to have his own copy of the law and he had to rule from the law. He clearly knew what the requirement of the law was, and yet David goes on to say, this man deserves to die. And Nathan then responds, retorts back, and he says to David, you are that man. You see, David was concealed. This this sin that he had attempted to conceal, well, the revelation of that sin was concealed from him. And upon this parable being presented to him, he speaks out of his sense of justice. And he accurately tells forth what should happen to this rich man who stole the lamb. Nathan responds, David confesses and repents on the spot. Now Nathan pronounces forgiveness. He says, God has taken away your guilt. Nevertheless, David has unleashed a sword against his house. In the light of Nathan's rebuke, therefore, David completely owns his sin And as deep and as dark as it is, and seemingly worse than Saul's sin, Saul who just committed an act of liturgical grievance or liturgical sin, David's sin seems at a visceral level much worse than Saul's, and yet David finds forgiveness and repentance, and Saul never did. Why? Because David completely confesses his sin. David completely owns it. Just like we saw last week, this psalm is a record of his confession. It's not only a record of his confession, it's a telling forth of the nature and the depth of his sin, and a searching out of the cause of David's sin. David, just as we saw in the previous psalm, in Psalm 31 last week, here he calls his sin, my sin, my iniquity, my transgressions. All of this is to show the holy requirement of God and God's amazing mercy. Absolutely amazing mercy. Not only does David not lose the kingdom, but in fact, we're going to see here in just a few minutes, God brings a blessing instead. So David's psalm now, is the having explored the context, I want to look at the psalm itself. Because this psalm is probably penned even as David was leaving, or excuse me, Nathan was leaving the temple or, or a um, palace that night. David writes this psalm at a point after Nathan has come and uh, rebuked him. And then he begins to confess and he lays out a public record of the depth of his confession. He describes these things as my, look at verse one and verse two. He says, blot out my transgressions, wash me from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Do you remember that? If you were here last week, we talked about how David owns these things. He doesn't say these were circumstances. These were items to be understood. These are mine. Though he attempted to cover up his sin so that it might not become public shame, the entire time he was covering it up, it was known to him. You see, the severity of sin can never be concealed ultimately. 
Sin that doesn't become public begins to gnaw at you and waste you away from the inside. Remember how we saw that last week? How it's, it, David was talking about how his bones were wasting away and his inwardly he was, he was becoming dry and like nothing. This is what is taking place through his evil acts. He understands not only the details of his evil acts, being adultery and murder, but also their cause. That is the source of which his transgressions came from. Verse 3, he says, I know my transgressions and my sin. We looked at last week how transgressions were individual actions of moving beyond the boundary. God says, thou shalt not, and you say, I don't care, I want to. You transgress that boundary that God establishes, and that despising of God's law is a despising of God as the lawgiver. Worse than this, though, David knows that God has seen everything, even though he has done it in secret. He says that I know my transgressions. It's ever before me. I can't look in the mirror without being reminded of what I've been doing, but not only what I've been doing, who I am. Verse 4, he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Notice that, evil in your sight. David does everything he goes to great lengths to hide it from the public that he might not lose his kingdom or that he might not suffer uh, shame. And yet it's done within his sight. Now, what's so interesting to me about this is David says that he has sinned before God and against God only. How is it the case that this would take place. Although David did evil to both Uriah and Bathsheba and many others, deceiving Joab, making all of his messengers somewhat complicit in his cover-up, all sin is a despising of God as a lawgiver first, before it is a transgression against a fellow creation. In this sense, does David say, only against you have I sinned, is because God is the only one who has the right to mark what is sin and is not sin. Though he does indeed do evil to other people, all sins are committed, in some sense, against God alone. Because God is the one who utters forth his law and defines sin. The law was given so that sin might be counted, as well as those sins ultimately will be reckoned by God. They will receive their just punishment. Sin essentially is this, asserting one's will and desire and deciding for oneself between good and evil. That was the deceit that Satan presented to Adam and Eve. God knows that in the day that you eat of this, you will become like him, knowing. But instead of knowing, the deceit is that Satan was presenting it to them, deciding between good and evil, choosing what is to be done, choosing what is not to be done. David, therefore, fully explores his condition, moving past individual acts, which are many and deeply grievous, and then goes to the center of his condition. Verse 5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. You see, David is confessing not just what he's done, but who he is. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Here he is not describing at all some particular sin of his parents. There's a number of reasons we know this, because if he was conceived outside of wedlock, if he was uh, not uh, a child of a holy marriage, then he could not have come into the assembly of the Lord. It's commanded that someone who is conceived out of wedlock is not able to be part of the assembly. So we know that David is not saying that his parents were engaging in immorality in their conception of David, but rather that the condition of who David is as a person was already iniquitous before he was brought forth from the womb. David is clearly describing not just his actions, but his full person that embodies sin. You see, sin is not just those things which we do. Ultimately, what David is saying is sin is who we are. We not only so identify with our sin so as to receive that original corruption descendant from Adam, but we love it, we cling to it, we want it. It is who we are by nature. Everything in David's confession, therefore, concerns those things which ought to be done outside of the sight of men, 
If you're, we're, we're going to look here, how he's talking about secret things, secret things, secret things. And then there is this amazing crescendo in this psalm. Everything spoken so far of in this psalm is completely invisible. David's knowledge of his sin in his heart and mind is something that's hidden. That's verse 3. Verse 4, David's sins were committed in private places. He, was, he looked upon her from his roof, which was most likely the tallest roof. He took her into his house and seduced her in his palace. He then sent messengers secretly to get Uriah, concealing it from Uriah. He also sent a message back with Uriah. Think about this. Think about the twisted nature of what David has done. He's taken a message to Joab saying to kill Uriah, and he's placed it in Uriah's hands. And Uriah carries the very note of his own demise. This is the secret nature of what David has done. And through Nathan's rebuke against David, David finally sees this. And he sees that not only his actions, but even the beginning of his own life, which is done where man cannot see in the hiddenness of the womb, even that is a mirror image of the darkness that fills him. David highlights this theme and it crescendos into a full admission of God's righteous requirement in verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. God sees not only all of what David has done external to him, but what David is internally. He goes on to say, you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. That is, God is convincing David of his need for righteousness. He's convincing David by his spirit that he needs a complete makeover, that David is one, as we're about to see through the imagery that he unleashes in this next verse, that is corrupted to the core. David's acknowledgement of God's requirement, therefore, is for complete holiness in the inner man, and it presents an impossibility on David's part. Up until this center point of the psalm, David's been saying, my actions, my sin, my transgressions, my iniquity, all of these things that describe him then meet finally at the requirement of God. And then if you look at the rest of this psalm, it mostly has to do with what God needs to do for David. Until now, David has been the subject, but he has sinned before God, and now the psalm must take a turn. It absolutely has to move beyond what David can do, because if David is attempting to remedy anything in this situation, it will only bring worse condemnation and guilt. David continues to hide and continues to run and conceal, adding murder to adultery. And yet at this point, if he's to ever be repaired, God has to step in. So David is then petitioning God, and he, as, after seeing God's holy requirement, David begins to plead for mercy from God. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Isn't this amazing? David runs from all of what he's done to the throne of God and begs that God would do something, that he would purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. You see, this this is really only the first few verses of a series of petitions that David asked God to take action on his behalf. David draws in this verse, in verse 7, on very clear and vital imagery in order to explain the severity of the reparation that God needs to bring. We're going to look at this very closely here, this imagery of hyssop. In the Passover, that is in the Exodus, God commanded that the houses of the Israelites be marked with the blood of a lamb, a, a small lamb, that was chosen for each house. And the Israelites were supposed to take a branch of hyssop and dip it in the blood of the lamb and then place it upon the lintel and the posts of the door. The lintel is the the beam at the top of the door and the posts are the beams at the side of the door. And so each person, each family in this hyssop was supposed to take this hyssop branch and then touch the house being a marker and indication of the obedience of that house to the promise of God to be spared from the final plague. The final plague comes upon all the houses 
of the Egyptians and the Israelites alike, a condemnation or a judgment that was equally applicable to everyone at work, and yet they were told to take this branch of hyssop, dip it in the blood, and apply it to the house in order that the people might be spared. This connection between house and people is going to be very clear and very important. Likewise, in the case of leprous diseases which were restored or which were cleaned, leprous people and houses were to be cleansed by the priest doing the exact same thing, taking two small birds, killing one of them, taking the blood and pouring it into a bowl of water, and then taking cedar wood, a scarlet cord, and a branch of hyssop, dipping it in the water, and then applying that by sprinkling to the house or to the person. House and person being intimately linked here. In the case of the leprous house, however, the priest was to come and examine. Just like the person, the priest was to come and examine. Unlike people, you can't remove their flesh without deep complications arising. And so in the law, God did not command that leprous people have skin removed or bones taken out or whatever. But in the case of a leprous house, a house that has become greenish or reddish, the priest is to command the owner of the house to remove the bricks or to remove the stones out of the wall to break up the plaster in it to take both the plaster and the stones out to an unclean place outside the city and to restore the house by putting in new stones and new plaster. The house has to be completely rebuilt from the walls out. However, if the priest returns after this rebuilding process and the leprosy has spread, it's the, the, the book of Leviticus says that that leprosy is persistent disease. It's a touch of affliction. It's not just a circumstance of, of illness. It is a touch of affliction, and therefore the house must be completely torn down. David, therefore, in this psalm, he builds on this imagery and he asks for the rebuilding of his entire person and life. But in the place of stones and plaster, he has broken bones and needs a new heart. In the place of the priest coming and finding leprosy still in the house, he asks that God would not see his iniquity, that instead of the greenish mold or the reddish mold, God would come and see him as one who is white, as one who is clean. Verse seven, it says, I shall be whiter than snow. That's the correct color for the house to be. Verse nine, verse eight, he says, let the bones which you have broken rejoice. In the place of stones, we have bones. In the place of new plaster, we have a new heart. Verse nine, he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You see, just as the priest had to come and examine, David knows clearly God is going to come and take notice of his life. God is the God who sees everywhere. He sees everything. So David's petition to be purged with hyssop is a confession of his spiritual state. Very clearly in the scriptures, hyssop is used for these two things alone, to cleanse the house, to preserve it, that it might not be destroyed in the judgment upon the, the final plague, and also that it would, not be ha- it would not have to be torn down, but rather it would be restored. David's understanding of this is a full confession. He knows the imagery when he says, purge me with hyssop. Hyssop in the scripture is intimately connected to these two house imageries. Though God desired to, uh, though David earlier in his life had desired to build God a temple, God says to David, I will make you into a house. Daniel, or sorry, 2 Samuel 7. Though he was supposed to be a a Yahweh follower, a a little T temple for God or a house for God, he joined his body in sexual immorality with Bathsheba. And in fact, this imagery is so important that I think that it's a clear application. Paul tells to the Corinthians, do not take what it belongs to Christ and join it to a harlot because you are a temple of the spirit of God. Your body is a house. Though David had, at at the time that Saul was rejected, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day, Saul lost the Spirit of God, 
And instead, it says, an evil spirit came upon Saul. Therefore, David prays, knowing what is almost going to happen. He therefore prays, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. You see, David prays, take not your Holy Spirit from me because he knows what's happened to Saul. He knows that he's in danger of becoming like Saul, being rejected for his continued apostasy. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now at this point, despite the severity of David's actions and sin, he then begins to take boldness in God's full restoration, that God will completely remake him from the inside out, and that will transform his public life. You see, he was going to bring a public shame upon not only the kingdom, but also the people of God, and also committing iniquity. He would face judgment, but here he then turns. And having God restored him, he then begins to say, what will take place if God has mercy on him? In verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. David's use of this term, blood guiltiness, is not just a mere analogy or image. He literally was worthy of death, for he had slain Uriah through conspiracy. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. What a wonderful image. David understands that if God does the restoration, that the restoration will be total and it will be complete and it will bear fruit. It will bear fruit that will be public fruit. Unlike Saul, who through his rebellion and sin lost the kingdom, David not only keeps the kingdom, but actually begins to expand it into a spiritual kingdom, not just military kingdom, not just economic kingdom, but a spiritual benefit on the people will come forth through David. David's forgiveness and mercy, therefore, are not founded upon anything he can do, but rather on what God alone can do. This picks up something that Samuel told to Saul, and David then represents in his psalm, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. You see, nothing in the Old Testament was set up to establish the atonement in a realized way. Every offering, every sacrifice, everything that was done was to teach the people of the severity of sin and the judgment that it brings and the need for substitution. That if they were to come before God, they must come with a substitute, a lamb, a goat, a a dove, what have you, if they were to be accepted at the altar. David understands this. He understands that he cannot be redeemed with only an external sprinkling of a branch of hyssop. Therefore, he says, purge me. He says, he he asked God to completely remove the corruption inside him. Indeed, even the sacrifice of an animal is found wanting in God's eyes. The near bringing, which is the term of the scriptures used to talk about the offering of the animal, the near bringing of an animal can do nothing about the waywardness and, and distance of heart. You see, if I bring an animal and yet my heart is not reconciled to God, I can't be accepted even though I've checked all the boxes on my liturgical forms. This is so true. Even today, Christian worship cannot be just done in a mere external form. And in fact, sometimes when the external forms are so polished, we let the internal reality slip. David knows this, and therefore he is saying, you cannot delight in a sacrifice that I would bring because my heart is far from you. And so God needs to redeem him. Both Samuel's objection to Saul and the confession of David in this verse meet together, and are finally reconciled. How does this psalm speak about Christ? If you were here during our time in the book of Hebrews, you may remember this, but they clearly are answered in this. If Saul can't bring an offering to God, if Samuel tells Saul, you won't be able to be accepted, and David says, I can't bring an offering, then in the Old Testament, in the old Levitical system, they could not be redeemed to God because they were inwardly corrupted. And yet, 
The New Testament shows us clearly how Christ fulfills this. And in fact, this is the exact meaning of the book of Hebrews in chapter 10 when the Hebrew writer makes this connection. He says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, again, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Verse 7 continues, Then I said, that is, Christ is speaking at this point, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of your book. You see, Jesus did not just bring an offering of an animal, but in verse 5 we see, A body you have prepared for me. No mere animal can atone for sin. God requires that an offering for sin be made in the likeness of the sinner. That is why Christ himself took on a body when he came into the world. All portions of this psalm, therefore, David's guilt, his transgression, his need for forgiveness, his need for repentance, his restoration and fruitfulness after God's new work, all of these threads find their resolution in Jesus Christ. Everything, every imagery that we've looked at and we've seen is supposed to be used by the Christian in reading his or her scriptures to drive him or her to Christ himself. That is, all of these imageries are supposed to point us to our need for Jesus himself. David, who in the words of Nathan stole a lamb, is redeemed by John the Baptist's title for Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember, Saul preserves the lamb and the sheeps. David steals, poetically steals a lamb, and yet David is the one who needs redeemed by a lamb. David, David's sin sent forth a sword against his house, and that sword ultimately was only born by the one born in the city of David. It's so interesting to me in Luke 2, the, the prophecy that's given to Mary, the prophet says that a sword will even enter and pierce your own soul. Three times in that same chapter, the writer of that gospel, Luke, says, city of David, David's place. The point is this, that David unleashes a sword in his house, and that sword runs through the generations and ultimately is only stopped by David's son. If you look at the narrative history of the Old Testament, everything that comes through David's line is ultimately ends in tragedy and horror. We see the greatness of Solomon, and yet at the end of Solomon's life, he's corrupted by the same sin that his father engaged in, a thousand times worse, almost literally. Though the first son that Bathsheba bore died, her other son, Solomon, became a part of the lineage of Christ. And it's important to see this because Matthew takes great pains to highlight this, and he uses words to help us get there. He says, that in, in the genealogy of Jesus, he says, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. In 2 Samuel, as the writer of that book is recording these events, he doesn't call Bathsheba Bathsheba. He calls her the wife of Uriah, highlighting and emphasizing the adultery that was was brought in. So David's sin, both in history and in a poetic sense, really did result in the death of his son. Not only the death of that son firstborn by Bathsheba, but through the lineage, the real death which was necessary of David's son. Though, does David, though David deserves both punishment for adultery and murder, both capital offenses, he escapes that. And so it is with every redeemed sinner. In, in Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about the corruption of those who exchange the glory of God for worshiping the creation itself. And he, he goes on to explain that these are the sorts of people who get rid of the natural use, and instead men desire other men and women desire other women. He then goes on to say that we know that those who do such things are worthy of death. But what's so interesting to me is that same list that he lists in Corinthians includes the word homosexuality. The same thing in, in Romans 1 that he says is worthy of death. And then in Corinthians, he says that these people will not receive the kingdom of God. They deserve death in a sense. And yet such were some of you. You may not have committed adultery. You may not have committed murder in the external forms. And yet what we've learned 
through Jesus Christ over and over again, is anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery. Anyone who has become angry enough with his brother has already murdered him in his heart. You see, all people are guilty of these sorts of sins. Christ, though never transgressing, even the least of God's laws, however, was numbered with the transgressors. He who never sinned, deserved, never deserved any sort of punishment, takes on the sentence of capital punishment. David really did deserve to have his house torn down because he was fully leprous. Remember, if the priest comes back in the house, the leprosy continues to spread in the house. What do you suppose would have, done, would have happened in David's kingdom had God not sent Nathan? Do you think that David would have one day woken up to the severity of his sin? I don't think so. I don't, that's, the way that I understand gospel penetration into the hardened heart of a sinner is that it is completely on God's uh, responsibility alone. God is the only one who can break through that hardness of heart. David would have become like the house that is leprous. It would have spread. It would have ate his entire life. Jesus, however, who committed no sin, is the one in John chapter 2 who says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. You see, David deserved to have not only his lineage house removed, but also his very life. And yet Christ is the one who is the true temple, the true house for God, and doesn't deserve destruction, and yet takes it on himself. The point is this, that not only did Jesus have his house torn down, it was raised up again. That is exactly what David is needing in this psalm. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways. Only if God brings about a resurrection from the dead can David have any hope of restoration. And not only with that, with the raising of Jesus, those who by faith are united to him can become like David. You see, it's not enough to see a psalm say that David did this, so also shall you. Or, you know, David killed Goliath, so you need to kill the Goliaths. The point is that you can't kill the Goliaths because the Goliaths are inside you. That's what David is saying in this psalm. He needs to be remade from the inward parts. In the gospel, therefore, Christ purchases his people complete renewal of person, the ending of sin, and life forever in harmony with God. Not only are we redeemed and restored, not only are we placed at right with God, we're given great blessings that we could never earn and certainly do not deserve. Because of what Christ did, we who are just as guilty as David can find boldness to confess our sins. You see, unless you know that God is able to restore, you will never find the courage to confess your sin. You'll never become honest with other people. You'll never be able to face God in the light of your sin unless you also hear that he is ready to forgive, that he's ready to restore and redeem. Not only can we confess, but we can find forgiveness and restoration. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would teach us the deep and wonderful mysteries of your word. We ask along with David, as he prayed, that you would show us wonderful things from your law. God, we pray that, the, that your word, these books that are often so hard for us, would not be dead or formalistic, but that you would, by your spirit, not only teach us how to read, but cause the words to come to life off the page. That you would show us the deep importance of listening along with your word, such that it would find entrance to us. Lord, we know that at the entry of your word, it brings life and understanding to all. And so, God, we ask for that today. We ask that you would bring us to the place where we not only hear our condition, just as David told Nathan, you are the man, but that your spirit would speak that to us individually, that we would know that we are just as guilty as he, he was. And yet we would also find solace in this, that you are a God ready to forgive. We pray, Lord, that you would re completely reform us from the inside out and that we, along with David, would become those who are able to be a blessing to others for the glory of your Son. Amen.